Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. We're talking really, in essence, as we have narrated through all but really one section of Romans chapter 12, and that is the portion that deals with some of the spiritual gifts that perhaps we'll visit with. It is not haphazard how the Holy Spirit of God arranged these verses. They start off reminding you about the tender mercies of God. You'll find them uh, in verse number one. He speaks of the mercies of God. And we spent some time, and I think I gave you, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten of those mercies that God's had upon you. And let me ask you this. When God had those mercies upon you, who were you? Were you his son? Mm -mm. Were you his ally? No. Were you holy? And the answer to all three of those questions is the same. It's no. Uh, Romans 5 mentions that you are a sinner, so you are unholy. You are ungodly, without help. And the scripture ultimately concludes that you are God's enemy. Now, I'll tell you, that's a hard pill to swallow in one sense, because when I think about my experience uh, of conversion and new birth, I don't think of myself as being the enemy of God. I went to Sunday school class. And I think sometimes we do ourselves a disjustice, and we assume... We make the assumption that because we were the recipient of a divinely imparted grace, that somehow we were less God's enemy. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I was raised in a home where my mom and dad loved each other, and my mom and dad loved church, and we went to church, and I said I went to Sunday school. So I could look at that and say, well, truly, I wasn't the enemy of God. I went to Sunday school. I learned about God. I was singing about God when I was little. Yet the reality is he wasn't my God. My parents having received the gift of God. They got saved before I was born. And uh, they are, as they are diligent to the Word of God and disciples of Christ, what are they doing? Well, they're instilling some of those virtues in their home. That's the grace that I was a recipient of. I was not a recipient at birth of saving grace, but I was some of the good favor that God bestowed upon them equally fell upon me. Yet from the eyes of God, as God looked at me, I was the enemy of God. And there was nothing my parents could do to change that situation. I mean, they could give the gospel early. They could live a life as consistent as possible so that my heart would not, because of their actions, reject the truth. But ultimately, me becoming part of the family of God relied solely in my own lap. There's no man that's going to go to heaven and be in the presence of the Almighty God. And God said, why are you here? And he's going to say, I'm here because my dad was such an extra great guy or because my mom was such an extra great gal. That's never going to happen. There'll only be one reason that one enters into the presence of the Almighty God. And that is because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleanseth us from all sin. Peter, touching on this, says, I am not redeemed with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Silver and gold inflates. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine that for a moment? Can you imagine if you were saved with silver and gold? I don't know what all the price is now, but let's say that silver's worth $50 an ounce and gold's worth $1,300 an ounce, and I paid a, a, an ounce of gold for my, my divine redemption before God. I paid the equivalent of $1,300 U.S. Well, all I got to wait is about another 10, 15 years, and I got a better deal than you did. Your salvation would have cost more than mine. Because everybody knows this, that things never cost less, it seems. They always cost more. 
down the road with inflation. Now I'm going to need uh, a, a, an ounce of silver, and that's going to be like 2,600 U.S. dollars, and a gallon of gas will be $15 a gallon, you know. Things are going to change. No, when God saved you, He needed the same payment for your sins that He needed for mine. The price has never changed. The wages of sin has always and will always be death. And Christ died for us. He did not exonerate your sins in a sense that nobody paid for them. We think of this sometimes, that the idea that I came to Christ and it just never paid. No, 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 your payment was absolutely paid. Somebody died in your place. There was a de facto harsh judgment of God. God's wrath is appeased through Jesus Christ because Christ died for the ungodly. And who's the ungodly? Me. That's part of the tender mercies of God. And not only did he give us of these tender mercies, but now he's imparted of his spirit and a marvelous grace of God has given us uh, uh, the ability to serve him. Aforehand, I couldn't do that. And how could you? Well, people try to do it. But how can you render an acceptable service to God if you don't know the God that you're seeking to serve? Or how can you render an acceptable service, or as the scripture says, good and acceptable and perfect, if in fact I'm imperfect, bad, and not acceptable? But that's what sin made me. The only people qualified to serve God are His children. That's why Peter, seizing upon this very principle, said, you're a royal priesthood. Do you feel like a royal priesthood this morning? No, frankly, I woke up with a headache. I don't feel very royal. I feel drab a little bit. But guess what? Positionally, I'm a child of a king. I'm awaiting a place where one day I'll sit and rule and reign with the Almighty God. That's the work, the grace, the goodness that God has done for us. And certainly, as Ephesians would say, it is not of works of righteousness, lest any man should boast. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for every good work. Well, you think now about these gifts, the opportunity we have to serve God, and that brings us into what has been a series of two or three messages on how do I now minister, or if you will, serve God effectively. And there's probably a dozen, 13 of these statements that we looked at. Everything from be loving, to be rejoicing, to be helping and aiding. But now we come down to verse number 14 and the gear is completely changed. Last week we kind of stepped over this one. I said we'd revisit it. But I want to really this morning preach about a new type of ministry. Let me say this. It is in some regards, in many regards is an easy thing to minister to people that love me. So you take your children or your grandchildren or your nieces and your nephews, they love you. And I'm going to tell you, if you've ever experienced the love of a child, you hate to see them grow old. But it's so innocent, so pure, so kind, I had a little girl I was teased with my little girl the other week. I just looked at her. This is not great parenting. I'll, I'll stipulate that. And I said, I just think you don't love me anymore. You've given it all to mom. 
and I'm hamming this thing up. And she looked at me. She put down what she was doing and she said, Dad, do you really think that? My heart was smitten. I said, no, I know better. And she went, Phew. <laughs> But I do love mommy more. You know? <laughs> well, if you've ever experienced that kind of, man, it's marvelous. So you think of that love that a father would have for a child. And then you would think of times, maybe a birthday rolls around, you're just like, that's an easy decision, isn't it? Boy, it's an easy decision to look at the child you loved that God has graced you with. And you'd, I dare say, I, I think in some regards, you'd at least seriously contemplate. You'd react, you'd hazard your own life for their well-being. Am I not right? That's an easy thing to do. Now you step out a little bit. There are some adults that have the opportunity in life to have delved into such a friendship. I speak not of a romance. I'm not speaking of marriage. I'm talking of a, a bond of such depth. I, I think you see this often in combat military, actually. But there's a level of bondness that a good man would lay down his life for others. But really, aside from that, we live in a world that does not make the reciprocation of love quite easy. But it is easy to love people that you know loves you. But the challenges we'll look at the text this morning is about how do you have a ministry? How do you minister effectively? How do you serve those that oppose your God? It's easy all day to talk about loving the loveless that need help. That's a complete different group as well. Those people that need help, I was at a store the other day, and I was in between visits. And I had to stop at a courtesy desk, and a guy was sitting there jawing with the, with the lady, just talking, you know, laughing, showing her pictures. And I was like, oh, man. And he looked at me, and he looked back, and he looked at me again. He said, come on. He said, I'll check my stuff. Let this guy go later. And he just stood there. He started talking to me about stuff. And he said, I, I saw you were pretty well dressed. I had just come from these visits, you know. And he said, I just let you jump in front of the line. So we chatted, and I was like, that worked well. So I took care of that, and then I went back into the store and had to buy a couple of things. And I'm on my last aisle, and the guy stopped me. And I knew what he wanted. He's beat up. Physically. Didn't have much. I knew what he wanted. He espied me coming in in a tie and said, this guy's got something. So he stopped me. I tell you, that man's an easy man for me to have some kindness towards. Maybe he was lying to me, but it seemed from my perspective that he, in fact, needed help. And when I see that, I'd be remiss that you can call me a sucker, but I think often about the Proverbs about giving to the poor, knowing that God shall repay. And he asked of me. And so I did what I could. That to me was an easy thing. He needed help. So I have no problem ministering to those. It never even crosses my mind that love me. Those that I have formed a deep bond with. Those that I know need dire help and may never be able to repay it again. But I'll be honest, I struggle with those people that don't need my help. 
and don't want my love. They stand in blatant opposition to my God. How am I supposed to deal with them? They don't like you. And it's nothing personal. They don't like your God. Well, I tell you, I'd like to be a little Petrine here, a little like Peter, you know. I'd like to have a sword. And I'd like for that sword to, you know, meet their ear and say I missed. I'd like to be a little, you know, shake my feet off at their door as it were. But the reality is the scripture is very clear on what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to lay down a list here. But let's start in verse 14. Bless them which what? Bless. Or bless their, it has the idea of speaking well of them. And this word persecute is a little bit different than we've seen in other places. The Greek word thalipsis in the other places. Uh, Dikeo is this one and it has the idea that want to make you flee. So Thalipsis persecute suffering has the idea of oppression. It's, it's like the pressing of an olive. So it's, it's dynamically forced upon you. This is not necessarily the persecution in that stead, but it is the people that are persecuting such a much that you just you want to go the other direction. They make you want to flee. And so it could be similar, but it can also be distinct. And the reality is we live in a Western world and in our society, thankfully, we are guaranteed or so we're told in great manner the right of assembly. And I'm not aware of anybody that stopped you from coming to church this morning. We're also given the right to not assemble. So the police don't come after you if you don't go to church. There was a day in our country where it was the truth. The deacons, if you didn't go to church, they'd come after you. Irish don't do that, by the way. They're good, wholesome. They get you once you're here. No. <laughs> There's a time that, that that kind of a thing occurred. It was a time that if you didn't go to the state church in our country, uh, then you had to pay an extra levy of tax that really existed. I'm not talking about Europe. I'm talking about the good USA. It was like that. It was like that in the Massachusetts Bay Area. It was like that in some of the southern states of South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina as well. And so if you were not of the state religion of Anglican in North Carolina, then what they did is you, would go to the, you wouldn't go to church or you went to maybe a Baptist or a Quaker church, then what you'd have to do is you obviously felt obliged to give to your church, but then they also taxed you an extra 10%. And if you didn't pay that extra 10%, that would ultimately go to the Lutheran church and then, or the Anglican church and ultimately into the, the governor himself, if you didn't pay that, they would send the constables after you and demand immediate payment. And if you were a farmer like many were and you didn't have the money to pay it, then they immediately took whatever they wanted to. And oftentimes they would come at the most difficult of times knowing that you didn't have the money because everybody had the same type work. Many of them, most people were farmers. And you take your horse. Knowing that you couldn't make it to town and back, they knew that you would go to one of the few neighbors that existed to get money and then they would tell you that they were going back home one way, that they were going back to the capital one way. But they'd really go a different way, knowing that you would never catch them that lied to you. And legally, they had legal gubernatorial protection to do so. 
that, that, that existed in this country for a period of time previous to the Revolutionary War, the War of Independence. I mean, aside from things like that, we have faced very little persecution in our life. Nobody's mad at me if I don't go to church. I mean, there might be some good Christian folks that are disappointed, as they ought to be. Nobody stopped us from coming. We struggle sometimes to know this persecution, but it is present. You know those individuals that just always mock about the things of God? Those individuals that always have a word to say about Christians or every, every negative thing they can find about Christians, they want to publicize it. And even when you and your heart know that is not every Christian. They're just individuals. That, so what is my responsibility? Verse number 14, bless them. And then he goes on in verse 14 and curse not. The idea of a curse is to doom them with an imprecatory type prayer. That's really what I would like to do, right? They've been such a burr under my saddle. They've been my Shimei to my David. Shimei was that son of Benjamin that cursed and swore at David after David fled Jerusalem because of the insurrection of his son Abishai, uh, Absalom. <laughs> you look at that and you're like, man, I'd just like to pray a little doom on him once in a while. Curse not. These are very powerful words that are written here. Why the audacity to speak in such boldness? I'll give you a couple of reasons why. Because this very idea of blessing them which persecute, bless and per curse not, was the very message that Christ preached. Hold your place here in Romans and flip over to that first place that I gave you earlier, Matthew chapter 5. We refer to this as the Beatitudes. If you participated in the Bible memory last year, this was one of the sections about this time last year that we were memorizing. Though I think we were maybe about verse 14 last year. But I'll give you just a minute to turn out. We're in Matthew chapter 5 and I want you to think of Verse 10, look at verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you, persecute you, believe that's the same word that Romans use, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now there's a distinction. The one persecute the lips has the idea of for your life. This idea here he's speaking and gives clarity in verse number 11. He's talking about they're reviling you. That is something done with the tongue. Um, they're speaking evil, all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. They're making up stories that are blatantly false, seeking to damage your witness and testimony. Paul said, be Christ-like. Bless and curse not. He says in verse 12 of Matthew 5, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Why? What's the next phrase? For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Welcome to the major leagues. There's been a host of other prophets. You could name them. Look at Jeremiah, they called him the weeping prophet. Here, here's a man that they mocked. Isaiah in a similar fashion. On and on again, Ezekiel and calling out stiff-necked people. They weren't even going to listen to his message. 
Hebrews chapter 11, many of them were sawn asunder. It's a whole different level of persecution to be in. And yet the Lord said in regards to those that speak evil against thee, bless and curse not. Now you're holding your place in Romans 12. We just finished up with Matthew. Flip over, if you will, to 1 Peter. Why? Why should I be Christ-like in this area? I mean, obviously, this is not the average tenor of society. The average tenor of society is do first so that you're not done in two. If you're hit, hit, hit back harder. That is the narrative of society. But yet here Christ's message was to bless and curse not. But not only was it Christ's message, it was Christ's very example. It'd be one thing for Paul to instruct bless and curse not. And then I could cross-reference that with Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are ye when men revile you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. But beyond that, I have an actual example. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. I like verse 17. He talks about honoring all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. Note verse 19. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience sake towards God endure grief, suffering wrongly, it keeps in that theme with that spoken narrative. They're tongue lashing. They're mocking me at the store, at the place of business. They roll their eyes at me with expressions of how terrible it is uh, to be a Baptist or how stupid it is to be a Christian or how naive I am. That's the language present. He says in verse number 19, it's thankworthy. In verse 20 he says, For what glory is it if when we be buffeted, that's the idea of being punched with a fist. When we're buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is what? There's our word from Romans. It's acceptable. Man, we will talk all day about how we're willing to serve God. I mean, frankly, I was at a wedding yesterday. That was an easy place to serve God. I think most everybody was happy except the few people that were not happy. Everybody was happy. Everybody was upbeat. A lot of people were tired. But it was pleasant. And I said, man, I'm getting my mind. That's the kind of service to God I'm willing to do. Yeah. But it didn't cost me anything. But now when I have to serve God in the face of blatant opposition... That's where the child of God says, oh, no, 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 no. And God said, yet when you do, that is, note the phrase there, acceptable with God. If we talked about doing things for God, one of the great things I can do for God is to be a testimony of uprightness and holiness and blessedness and be Christ-like in the face of vile, reviling persecution of lip. God says, now, that's a sacrifice I'd like to have. I mean, that showcases a heart that is steadfast upon God. That showcases a life that is under spirit control. 
that showcases a life that is not conforming to this world, but is being transformed by the renewing of their mind. That they could look at the reviling tongue, the blasphemous tongue, the harsh, lying. I think of Romans chapter 2, he talks about the asp that they have. He said, this is acceptable unto God. Notice in verse 21, he's going to change gears and give you a major tenet of why the Lord is going to explain through inspiration. It's recorded for here in Peter. He's going to tell you why it's acceptable unto him. Yes, I've got the message. That was Matthew 5. But now I'm going to get the example of Christ. For even hereunto were you called. Called to what? A lot of people think that that's soteriologically called, meaning it's a call to salvation. Not every time you find the word God called you, does that deal with your salvation? He's not talking about this is why you were saved. No, he's saying this is what God has called you to. God saved anybody that is say, call upon the name of the Lord and I shall be saved and recognize who he is and what they are and turn from evil and sin and look unto God. God will save anyone. The Jew first, the Greek. God, Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, no respecter of persons. But listen. You're saved, God also will open up opportunities in which He's going to let you experience a little suffering. We'll talk about God give us an opportunity to serve you. And I hearken back, I said to that wedding, that's an easy place to think I'm serving God. That's cheap service. It's a positive thing to the brethren, but in relationship to what it really calls me, it's cheap. But now, in the face of opposition to live right, and to do right, that is a valuable, expensive piece of sacrifice. It's hard to have my face insulted. It's hard for what I've given my life to, to be mocked. And to every action to be manipulated under some horrible travesty and saying that one thing was really meant when another one was. And I'm speaking in generalities, but look at the absolutes of Jesus Christ because we know about Him. Look what He did. He's left is an example. Whose example? Christ's example. We should follow in his steps. Who did no sin. Neither was guile. That is the idea of deceitfulness found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, my soul. He preached on the Sermon on the Mount. They'll revile you. They'll curse you and blessed are ye. It's one thing to preach it with your mouth. It's another thing to live it with your life. And that's what Peter's capitalizing here on through inspiration. He says, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not. When was Christ reviled? Well, the true answer to that is every day of his ministry. But there was a pointed time, a high watermark, a chief time. When was he reviled? On the cross. Time won't allow us to go over to the Psalms. But in the Psalms, this is prophesied centuries before the Lord would hang on a cross. It was prophesied that they would wag their heads. It's hanging before the cross. And there, those riding, walking across the road with an eye shot would look and wag their heads in scoffing disdain. He'd hang on the cross. And they would cry unto him, If thou art God, save thyself. Do you remember that? They'd blaspheme him. 
When did he suffer? Oh, he suffered a lot. He had no place to lay his head. He knew what it was like to be weary. But friend, the high watermark of his suffering came at Calvary. And there was a great agony on the cross. He was beaten beyond near recognition with a whip that at the end had particles of metallic origin that would wrap around his body and, and nearly disembowel him. The hairs plucked from his beard. He's slapped around. He's made to carry his own instrument of cruelty to the very place to which it would be deposited. His hands are nailed, driven through with spikes. And even after he gave up the ghost, a Roman centurion comes by. A man that knew death. He's a centurion. He's not an enlisted private. This man, likely on his bodies, knew what war is. And it was his job to break the legs of those others that were still groaning in agony. So they had no, no ability to lift themselves up so they might receive in oxygen into their lungs. He would break their legs. And unable to push themselves up slowly, slowly their lungs would fill. And through asphyxiation they would meet their end. But when he came to Christ, he noticed he was already dead. So they break not his leg. But what the centurion do? Diabolical hatred. He thrust through his spear in a dead body. But through all of this passion and agony, look at our Lord's response. He reviled not again. He suffered. He threatened not. What did he do? Marvelous word here. What did he do? He committed. Oh, that we would have children of God that in their life, particularly as it relates to opposition, would be so committed to truth despite the, uh, uh, the suffering and the reviling and, and the accusations would be committed to God. Notice what he was committed. Look at verse 23. But committed him, or committed rather to him, that judges righteously. What was it God was doing? What was it Jesus Christ was doing? He was going to let God the Father, the judge, take care of things. That's the very essence of this last portion of Romans chapter 12. Now I want to notice the last part of verse 24 quickly. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live righteousness, live unto righteousness by whose stripes, I think of Isaiah 53, we were healed. The grand reality is we have Christ's example. If I had no other reason to endure the uncomfortability of trying to minister to people that are openly opposed to the things of God. I could be able to say it was because of what Christ did. 
It's exactly what he did. I want to take it one more step. I want you to go back to your knowledge of Scripture. There were three crucified that day. The one on the middle and the two malefactors, the Scripture says, on either side. Do you remember? At the beginning of the crucifixion, both malefactors were guilty of reviling him. And yet what did the Lord do? Did not respond grievously unto them. Throughout the heat of that day, in the agony of the pain of that cross, the action of the divine Lord was showcased in great clarity that one of those malefactors witnessing, feeling in his body some of the same pains the Lord would have felt, seeing them mock, seeing them spit at, seeing them jeer, watching them taking of his cloak, gambling upon one and renting the other one. He witnessed this. Throughout part of the day, one of those malefactors said, Lord, remember me when thou art coming to thy kingdom. Do you remember the Lord's response? Look at the powerful result that was conveyed when Christ endured the sufferings, endured the reproach, it made an eternal difference in the life of an individual. I speak of the thief on the cross. You go to work this week. You go to your place of business. And you're gathered about upon one of those that is full of opposition to God. And you can hear it in their voice. You can hear it in their tenor. And deep within your heart... You have no desire to witness to them. You have no desire to care for their soul. Remember the great example of Christ who reviled not again but committed all things to him that judgeth righteously. That opportunity may be the greatest opportunity that you have to showcase the personal love of God that is in your heart and your dedication to him. And that faith that not only has saved you, but that faith that has led you down a path of righteousness for His name's sake. What a wonderful opportunity being Christ-like has in the lives of those that oppose Him. Bless them that persecute you and curse not. Getting a little ahead of myself, but I'll conclude with this. The reason you don't have to curse is because they're already under the curse. And the judge standeth at the door. And he that heareth all and seeth all will one day judge all. And we will not be judged according to our good works. We will not be judged by the status of our wallet. 
We will not be judged by the accolades of this life or the prestige, but I will be judged by what I have done with Jesus Christ. For the only way to heaven is to have the robe of His righteousness upon me. And to receive it freely I must. All other trust and hope is sinking sand. And there is coming a judgment day, no doubt. And the world that has rejected Jesus Christ will stand before a great white throne. The revelator said, and heaven and earth passeth away. It's like a great uncreation. And they'll stand in their unadulterated sin and they'll look explicitly into the face of the Almighty God. The question will not ask, be asked if you're good or if you think you're good enough. The books will be open. And whoever's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. They will receive the wages of their sin. Only those that have received the great gift of God will be pardoned. Oh yes, within the face of opposition, be Christ-like. For judgment soon comes. Bless them that persecute you and curse them. Let's stand where feet, Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.